think there is. I honestly think that we're done with that part of the story. But, yes. Never mind then. <laughs> what? I was going to ask something of you guys in confidence, but these guys, they don't need to hear. <laughs> Do I need to pause? No. No. It was just a thought I was having. Oh. Can you hold it till the end of the episode? No. Um, I was thinking, <laughs> is it weird or bad that I think that the... The P one is less bad than the the shit one. Oh no, no, it's definitely less bad. Like, let me do it this way. Yeah, well, I don't know about now. But like, okay, back in the day, you could find porn called water sports. Oh yeah, no. So, if I was, yeah, no. if Piss I play, still listen, totally a thing. I'm just saying, if I was in love, okay, and somebody who I was in love with wanted to try water sports, mm-hmm. I could potentially. Be convinced to to try some stuff. However, if they want anything to do with, let's say, peanut butter, okay, I'm out. I'm out. 100. percent I'm, I'm out. Make, I'm gonna make two things real clear right up at the top of this episode. I love my girlfriend cat more than anyone in the world, except maybe my parents would never let her pee on me. You don't love her. there's a difference between having someone pee on you that's also true and and pissing in your mouth that's yep that's very true that's a good point don that's a good point and i i think i think i wouldn't drink it is the thing oh i certainly wouldn't absolutely not no thank you i don't want it i mean we did discuss Two weeks ago, when we were talking about the Essex, we did talk about that they drank their own urine. So it got to a point. I mean, we know it's that might, it's different <laughs> if it's for survival and it's right. your own. Yeah, that might be why it's less bad to right. us because of that. At this point, it is just a meme. But like in the actual definition, anyway, um, J- uh, just say the name. We all know Bear Grylls. Bear, Bear Grylls. Yeah, did the thing mm-hmm. a few times there. And because of that, we are all sort of like lightly desensitized. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember we were on a cruise ship. And, you know, if you, I don't know if you've been on a cruise. Nothing good happens Only on a cruise ship. Well, um, actually, I don't know, man. You about the threesome? I've, I'm sure lots of threesomes no, happen on cruise threesome. ships. Oh yeah, the carnival magic started a fucking started like hour long person multi level brawl. Yeah, because yeah, we were talking about this and we were smoking a bunch of weed and playing Mario Party. Yeah, because remind me because I was a couple who found a woman who was willing to do a threesome with them. Uh huh. But that woman didn't tell her significant other that she was going to do a threesome. Right. And the significant other found them. Oh boy! So that started a fight, which somehow then turned into a sixty-person brawl over three levels of the cruise ship that was not able to be stopped until the Coast Guard arrived. Right. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's a long time. Yeah. <laughs> That's a while. And huh? I bet you there were water sports involved. That's at least 15 minutes of water sports. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, welcome everybody to Two Towns Over After Dark, where you can tell that we are saying, talking about anything. Other than what we <laughs> have a script written for. <laughs> yeah. Anything to keep us yeah. getting, uh, into this, which again... If you listened last week and you decided to come back, hey, that's on you. Um, but uh, but welcome back, welcome well, yeah, back, welcome back. Uh, it gets worse. That's my line. So, uh, <laughs> well, 
so welcome to Two Towns Over After Dark. I'm Don. I'm Ruben. I'm not into water sports. <laughs> and uh, today <laughs> we're going to go from the uncomfortable humor of Albert Fish to just the sheer terror of Albert Fish. It's about um, to be bad. Yeah. Content warning. Yeah. All of it. Again, yes. all no, of it. Literally, literally all of it. this is not a joke. No. I, it's all of it. Right. Ruben, I don't know if you remember one time uh, we were like vaguely mentioning Albert Fish, and you were like, did Albert Fish kids? And mm-hmm. I said, no matter what word mm-hmm. you had put in that gap, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so this part, this episode, is the reason why we created an After Dark version of the show. Um, there's a four-drink minimum, and in <laughs> fact, if you've ever wanted to be a Lovecraftian noir detective with trauma and a drinking addiction, this is the episode to do it. Mm-hmm. If you actually do have a drinking addiction, though, go yeah. non-alcoholic yeah, for this yeah, one. Don't yeah, let yeah. us no. influence you like I, that. I, I said near <clears> beer. That's not what we here for. Last, last time, n- near beer. So, um, before we get too dark, though, uh, there is at least one last piece of humor to milk out of this madman. Oh, good. Now, the woman we spoke about last out of, week. Out of what? Out of his dicky? <laughs> out of his monkey? <laughs> out of his little curious George? His peewee? <laughs> no. Um, now, the woman we spoke about at the end of last week, Grace Shaw. Uh, the woman who was receiving all these letters, uh, she alerted the police to the letters. Now, Fish was actually arrested and sent to Bellevue Hospital uh, for evaluation. Have we not mentioned Bellevue in We've another episode? It. We've mentioned it. I think it was in the Bed- Bedlam episode. Maybe. Yeah, that where we mentioned sense. other famous, yeah, yeah. bad ones. Uh-huh. But, uh huh. But Bellevue's one of them. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so when he was sent to Bellevue for evaluation, he was found to be polite, calm, and cooperative and was let go. Yeah, it's um, really fucking easy to get out of places like that if you are a white man who is polite. Yep. Now, uh, when the police arrived uh, to arrest him and was searching his house, uh, they found in his, one of his dresser drawers, uh, under clothing, a makeshift cat of nine tails. Mm-hmm. And a, uh, along that's why he wanted a nice one last episode. Yeah. Yeah. I had to have a nice one. Yeah. Along with a rotting hot dog and a carrot. What can we discuss? What defines a nice cat of nine tails as opposed to a bad one? That it's a professionally made one. We could go to a Ren fair and I could show you some different qualities of leather and whatnot. Yeah. True. Um, I'm assuming that his was made out of nonsense. (laughs) <laughs> like like it's, belts it's, it's, and yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's, it's like a kind of slight. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. And just like a plunger stick, <laughs> and they're all like gorilla glued. To now the... a real cat of nine tails <laughs> from what like what the Romans used. Yeah, wrapped or entwined in the leather braids. They had like pieces of glass or yeah. glass and nails and <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Like, the same shit that uh, they loaded their cannons with in the Revolutionary War. Right. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're not really going to talk too much about the cat of nine tails. We're going to focus more on the rotting hot dog and the carrot. That was a penis. <laughs> no. Well, uh, just a hot dog? It's just a hot dog, but... When asked what the cat of nine tails was for, Fish simply responded, I use it to whip myself. Not that it's anyone's goddamn business. That is, Which is actually true. Yeah. That's fucking fair. <laughs> It's like, y'all know what a sex toy is. Y'all know that that's a sex toy. You don't get ask it. a stupid question. Don't ask a dumbass question that you know the answer to already. Hey, what's that weird rounded pyramid shape in your room? It's a butt plug. You knew yeah. it was a butt plug. Don't ask again. Uh, then uh, the, one of the police officers picked up the rotting hot dog and asked what it was. 
what it and the carrot was for, to which Fish simply answered, I stick them up my ass. He but picked, my question he is, picked, does the does the hot... Listen, <laughs> why a rotting one? You what? can get a fresh pack of hot dogs. This is the 1920s. That's what we did in the 20s is fucking cook hot dogs. <laughs> Drink illegally. That's what we did. It's I have to I have to point this out. That detective or cop, whatever he was, picked up that rotting hot dog with his bare hand. Yeah. It is the nineteen twenties or thirties <laughs> now or whatever it is. He picked it up like with with his thumb and forefinger. Yeah. What's what's this? Held held it out at arm's length, apparently. And then and asked, again, he should have fucking known. known. Yes, exactly. Don't touch it. He said, I used... Listen, man. <laughs> you got three objects here. One of them has already been described as self-flagellation. Yep. What the fuck else did you think the other objects were for? <laughs> so, um... It's, now, we didn't... Talk much last episode about all the pins that he puts. We'll get there. Oh, okay. We'll, we put, a, we'll put a pin in that, huh? Because we'll he put, pin he, put he he talked well, about it a little bit, else, but there's there's more. You also talked about it oh, being the, in his ass because of the tree made the tr- uh, Trevor yeah, do it or whatever. No, there's there's more. Thomas Thomas there's Thomas Kedden, but there's even worse than that. No way. Yeah. <laughs> so while Fish was never thought to have physically attacked or abused his own children. He did encourage them and their friends to paddle his buttocks with the same nail-studded paddle he used to abuse himself. Which is, in fact, abuse. Is abuse, yes. He soon developed a growing obsession with cannibalism, often preparing himself a dinner consisting solely of raw meat and sometimes serving it to his children whenever the moon was full. My God. Yeah. I have a question. Why did he assume cannibals eat raw? Because I, you know, if I were a cannibal, which you're not, which I'm not legally, legally, <laughs> that's what my doctor said, anyways. I would cook the meat the way I like to cook meat, you know? Yeah. How, like in a kitchen? And how, because humans don't eat raw meat? Yeah, but we've also established that he likes drinking blood. That's also bad. He does yeah. get culinary. He does. At one point, though. Yeah, we'll get there. It's encouraging. He's improving himself. <laughs> He's working yeah. on some skills. He took, he took a couple culinary classes. Yeah. You know, um, but as we stated in last week's episode, Fish began raping it. I'm sorry. It's just that my job here is to try to make anyone this crazy sound logical in any way, and, like, it can't be done. Exactly. No. So, like, this I, one's I too just far keep gone. asking questions like I did with fucking... Uh, Tanzler, yeah like but why and like the answer is he's fucking crazy i don't understand what you're confused about right with Tanzler, it was mercury yeah well that's true it was mercury and x-rays and yeah uh, asbestos i think we said Mm -hmm. i don't remember we worked in it as a um anthrax it was anthrax i think no asbestos just kills you it's asbestos because he was working in a factory at one point I honestly don't remember now. Um, of, that's so many episodes with, ago now. I know. With Tanzler, it was a lot of like mercury poisoning yeah, mercury and that and whole bit. Radiation. With fish, it's more like a history of childhood abuse and predisposition to many horrific mental health issues that right. do not 
allow you to behave as a normal person. Well, there's actually been apparently scientific studies that say that the older uh, the sperm is, that it does lead to more mental issues. Oh. And his father was 75 years old when he impregnated you know, his mom with mm. fish, Albert. So, I And mean, she was in what, her late? 30s something like that yeah he was i think you said 43 years older than yeah she was 70 he was 75 so she would have been 42 yeah which 32 does start oh 32 yeah okay 32 is fine if she were 42 that i think that's around i I may be wrong i don't know women's anatomy in pregnancy but it's that's around the the part where it does get a little bit more dangerous well it's also we're talking over a century ago right yeah you're not wrong it's there's it's the younger you are uh post puberty and the older you get thereafter yeah right. so like once you're approaching your mid 40s it becomes more dangerous for you to have a kid it could also be Usually. more dangerous for you to have your first kid i don't remember if that was i don't know about all that i don't i can't I don't either i don't know i don't want to pull shit out of my ass for that yeah me, yeah i know me either <laughs> not right now so as not right now for sure <laughs> goddamn right as we stated last week fish began raping young boys in 1890 at um yeah, in, ni- in 1890. This became an obsession for Fish, uh, one he would partake in any chance he could. Now, while we only know of three actual murder victims of Albert Fish, it is not beyond the realm of possibility that there were more. In fact, during his confession, Fish claimed to have had a child in every state. So this was the 30s, so we're talking 48 states, I think. I don't know. Now, Fish actually... It doesn't matter. It's yeah. not true. Fish actually believed that he was being ordered by God to do this. this no, you in, didn't. Like, I, no, he didn't think that. Well, well, he became fascinated with the story of the binding of Isaac, where Abraham is told to sacrifice his son to God to prove his faith. That's a game. It's yeah. good roguelike. Yeah. That's a good roguelike game. And, and at the last minute, just before Abraham goes through with it, an angel appears and tells Abraham to stop and provides the ram instead. Fish believed that if he was murdering these children and God did not want it to happen, he would send an angel to stop him. Okay, but Mr. Fish, here's the thing, is that logically, if God did want you to do it, he would have sent the angel first as well, is the thing. Because the angel delivered a dream, and then after that, um, Isaac prayed a whole lot. He didn't want to do it. Right. I mean, Abraham. Abraham. Yeah. For Isaac. Isaac didn't have a choice. That's yeah. That's what I meant. <laughs> Isaac really didn't Isaac want to do it. Really Isaac was praying. fucked. Don't is the thing. Happen. Isaac yeah. was fully screwed at this point. Now, Fish was also obsessed with the Bible verse Psalm one thirty seven verse nine, which reads, "Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks." Now, it's quite obvious that Fish, rather consciously or unconsciously, misunderstood the meaning of this verse, which is about overcoming one's enemies and not the joy one gets from killing a child. He said he was a devout Episcopalian. Yeah, he was Say Episcopalian. it again. The the verse. I Happy mean? is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, pro life. <laughs> Sorry. Wow. <laughs> you want to be on the rant? Because <laughs> that was hot fire. <laughs> part part of the whole thing with Episcopalian is usually they are much less radical right. than. Other sects of Christianity. Okay, I'm going to try to do... But as they, a Southern person who grew up in Christianity, I'm going to try to do it this way. Actual Roman Catholic, that's the biggest type of Christian you get to be. Yes. After that, you've got uh, um, like American I- Catholic, Catholic, like Irish Catholic. Yeah. 
Right after that, you've got Southern Baptist. Ooh. Well, uh, I would some would like argue evangelicals. Now. Some would argue evangelicals, but evangelicals are. That's a different. That's like a, I mean, anybody whole, can be an evangelical. But the, yeah, the goal of evangelism just means to Protestants convert. get pretty crazy too. I'm though they about do the talk fundamentalist evangelicals. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, but you can be a fundamentalist evangelical and also a Methodist and or a Baptist or whatever, yeah, okay. or or a Mormon, right? Yeah. Uh, oh fuck, I forgot about Mormons. <laughs> the, Mormons don't rank highly. They don't. They Jehovah's don't. Witnesses. They don't. Neither one of them rank real high. Honestly, on the intensity factor, yeah. um, both of them kind of came in strong and fizzled early as far as the <laughs> zealotry of their various members. Um, I would say that Methodists rank pretty low as well, generally. As, as far as like... Intensity. Intensity. As far as like zealotry. Uh, Episcopalian is generally very, very low, low intensity Christianity. Yeah, it's, like the Catholic Church will literally send a priest to your house to fucking exercise it. Right, that's about as much as you can get can do. Yeah, uh, and then after that, it's you know pretty much just the crazy ones that you've heard about, and then Baptists and Methodists, and then, then it goes down from there. Yeah. Pretty much, really. Then there's Pentecostal. Yeah. Then there's Pentecostal because that shit's wild. But um, there are two different types of Baptists. Um, there's the kind that are gentle, and then there's the kind that are the hellfire and brimstone Baptists. Yeah. Those are the new fundamentalists. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones that Don's talking about, I think. The ones who basically are calling for the government to bring back capital punishment for the crime of being gay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Actually, I actually saw one last night. We're not saying, we're not calling for you to murder them. We're just saying that the state should bring back capital punishment and kill them under the law of the land. Well, because that's not murder, Don. I know. <clears throat> so the first murder victim <laughs> attributed to Fish was Francis McDonald. Do you want to be on the rant? Because it feels <laughs> like we've all got some stuff to say. Uh, who went missing in 1924. Now, McDonald vanished while playing with his brother and a group of friends on Staten Island. His Fucking bo- Staten Island. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of murder in Staten Island. This is before, way before Cropsey. Oh, yeah. Uh, his body was found in the, in the woods shortly thereafter. He had been strangled by his own suspenders. Uh, shortly after his arrest, Fish confessed to being the one who lured Francis into the woods, uh, later assaulting and strangling him. Now, he admitted that he was ready to dismember the boy, but he thought he heard someone approaching and fled the scene. I feel like it's harder to strangle somebody with something as stretchy as suspenders. Mm. You'd be surprised. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, know I mean, they, they allegedly. That- <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's uh, like you know how they they, they stretch. Yeah. So I feel yeah, like they you, only stretch you, so far. I know, yeah. but you grab them by one point, and then I feel like you got to like readjust or wrap them around yeah, your hands. You know, because they it's like oh shit. Well, now I have to hold my hands too far apart for this to work. Well, plus I think Francis McDonald was like four years old, so it's not putting out much of a fight. Hey, Josh. I I'm sorry to have to be the one to say this, not only because they will isolate the audio, but like <laughs> I'll do it as visually as I can so they can't get me. Um imagine a neck. Yeah. yeah uh-huh. Imagine, let's say, a cord, perhaps this one. Yes. It isn't stretchy, but you get the point. I don't necessarily have to use two hands is the thing. I can do this number. And then I could just like pull back. Yeah. And then I'm but an you don't adult. Get as, you don't get as much pr- well, yeah, when it's a kid. And it's a child. They have softer necks. They've got softer joints and things. 
And also, they're weak, comparative to an adult. All right, this is making me want to talk about Albert Fish again. Yeah, please. <laughs> so on July 11th, 1924, a fish found eight-year-old Beatrice Keel playing alone on her parents' farm on Staten Island, New York. He offered her money to come and help him look for wild rhubarb. I can't tell you how badly I don't want to hear about any more kids getting murdered. Well, I know. But I know that's our job. But like, up, man, we hear about we're, it we're a lot. Three. Dog, it's a lot, though, is the thing. <laughs> yeah. She was about to leave the farm when her mother chased Fish away. Now, Fish left, but returned later to the Kills barn, where he tried to sleep, but was discovered by Beatrice's father and forced to leave. It was only three days after this incident that Fish found and killed Francis McDonald. Now, Francis McDonald has spent the majority of the day playing on the front porch of his house. At around 2 p.m., his mother came out to join him, cradling her month, his month-old sibling, ugh, month-old daughter Annabelle, in her arms. Shortly after she sat down, she noticed a strange figure making his way down the middle of the street. A stooped elderly man, shabby in appearance with gray hair, a gray mustache, and a gaunt gray stubbled face. The gray man. Well, yep. That's, that's what kids called him for the most yeah. part was the gray man. She said that he continuously made a constant nervous motion with his hands, clenching and unclenching, and he seemed to be mumbling to himself. As he passed down the street, the two German shepherds belonging to the McDonald's next-door neighbor started to howl. The gray-haired man turned toward the woman on the porch, tipped his hat, and then vanished down the road. Later that afternoon, as Francis's mother had gone after Francis's mother had gone back inside, Francis and his brother went over to the play with their friends in the street. Shortly after they started playing, the gray man appeared again, standing a short distance away, beckoning to them. Francis walked over to see what the old man wanted, while the others continued to play their game. When they looked for Francis a few minutes later, both he and the old man had disappeared. Now, uh, Harold Schechter, which I forgot to say at the beginning of the first episode and now, is the author of the book Deranged, mm -hmm. where most of this information came from. I got most of the information from <clears throat> Deranged and a book called uh, Albert Fish in His Own Words, mm -hmm. which was actually transcripts of his confessions and the letters and everything else. But uh, Schechter wrote... In deranged. In the end, it was a trio of scouts, Boy Scouts, Henry Lazare, Thomas Personae, and Henry Wood, who found the missing boy. The three were passing through a clump of trees on the uh, Charlton Woods property when Wood, who was talking and walking in front of his friends, literally stumbled upon the body. It had been hastily concealed under a pile of branches and leaves. The clothes below Francis's waist, socks and shoes and underpants, khaki knickerbockers, and khaki knickerbockers had been violently ripped from his body. He had been, as the newspapers would put it, atrociously assaulted, then strangled with his suspenders, which were twisted so tightly around his neck that they seemed embedded with the flesh. Good Lord. See, I like how you'll read directly from Albert Fish's own writings, but you wouldn't let me read uh, erotica about Mothman's supple cock. Well... He is. It's just discrimination, is what it is, Josh. We got to. It's because Mothman's a brown brown man. Yes, yeah, it's because Mothman was a brown man. That's, that's why. I <laughs> that's <don't>. institutionalized racism, <laughs> and we will not stand for it here. So Albert Fish's next attempt was targeted at a boy named Cyril Quinn, a young boy he had been he had been molesting. Fish offered the boy uh, Cyril and his friend lunch in order to lure them into his home. It's. I hate how casual that can be just you know one of the young boys that fish had been molesting yeah uh, while Good the boys Lord, man this is a lot <laughs> while the boys were waiting for the I sandwiches did, i lied about the sex that i am gonna have so <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
So while the boys waited for their sandwiches, they began to wrestle on Fish's bed, which is just... Yeah, that stuttering breath said all we needed. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The mattress overturned while they wrestled, revealing Fish's implements of hell. A knife, a handsaw, and a cleaver. The boys fled the home in fear for their lives. Once again, Fish's mission to kill and consume a child had failed. And this caused Fish to up his game. So this whole sequence reminds me, which one was it? Cropsy. It was Cropsy. Mm-hmm. Where um, he like fucking got a whole bus full of kids. Yes. Yeah. And then brought them back because right. he yes. went too far. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's like, thing. this is definitely more than I can chew. This is right. like the opposite of that. Except <laughs> except with Fish, it's, it's literally like, chew. It's literally more like, instead of... The, right. It's like he bit off more than he could chew in that one. But in this one... For this guy, it's like, man, I've been taking two small bites. Yes, I wonder I how have much not, I can chew. I wonder once. how much I can chew. Yeah. Like, so the murder of Francis McDonald had begun to wane from people's memory by the time 1927 rolled around. And the gray man was all but forgotten. Now, a family called the Gaffneys uh, occupied a small apartment on the second... Jinkies. Gaffneys. Oh, oh shut up. Uh, the second floor of... You had 19- to get a joke in there had somehow, to. You some gotta. way. Yeah, we are technically a comedy podcast. That's true. Like, oh, quick, he mentioned something that isn't murder. Make a joke about it. <laughs> get, you gotta get in quick. <laughs> so they lived on the second floor of 99 15th Street, one of several running, run-down tenements in uh, the borough of Brooklyn. Later in the afternoon of Friday, February 11th, 1927... Billy Gaffney, a four-year-old boy, was playing in the dimly lit hallway outside his apartment. With him, his three-year-old neighbor, a boy by the name of Billy Beaton. An older neighbor... Billy Beaton, that ass. mm -hmm. Leave it to Beaton? (laughs) An older neighbor, 12-year-old Johnny McNiff... Names are all we got for jokes at this point. It really is. (laughs) It's the... I mean, we are scraping the bottom of the barrel. Uh, Johnny McNiff, who lived on the top floor of the tenement and who who was home minding his baby sister heard the sound of the two friends playing and headed downstairs to join them what year is this again 1927 good okay good good i don't you know a few minutes later however the the, his baby sister began crying and johnny hurried back to his apartment to quiet her when he returned to the second floor no more than three minutes later the two billies were gone billy beaton's father who was caring for the children while his wife was in the hospital came out of his apartment and found Johnny in the hallway. I'm picturing them as anthropomorphic uh, cartoon billy goats, <laughs> just to lighten the mood. Yeah. The billies. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Beaton... It's a da- good trick. Thanks. Mr. Beaton dashed to the Gaffney apartment, but the children weren't there. The Beatons are sentient boxing gloves. <laughs> I uh, like to imagine them as me's. Yeah. Like with the fucking floaty I don't arms. think you want to do that. Oh, Mies. Oh, like like from the Wii. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like from the like Wii. M-I-I, Mies. Yeah, 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 yeah. I thought you were like miniature U's. I mean, I like, that is what a Mies is. Don't do that. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Mr. Beaton dashed to the Gaffney's apartment, but the children weren't there. Afraid that the two boys might have wandered into the street, he ran down the stairs to the front stoop and began calling their names, but no one answered. Mr. Beaton's apprehensions deepened by the moment. And with Johnny at his side, he began a rapid search of the building, starting at the ground floor. But the two boys were nowhere to be found. As soon as they reached the top floor, however, Mr. Beaton was relieved to see his son, alone, by the ladder that led to the roof. Billy Beaton sounded excited. When asked where they were, Billy said that they were on the roof. 
We saw chimneys, he said, and steamships. Looking up at the open trap door, Mr. Beaton was confused. The tenants of the building, most of whom had young children, were careful to keep the hatch closed at all times. And no boy as young as Billy Beaton or Billy Gaffney could have possibly moved it aside. When Mr. Beaton asked his son where Billy Gaffney was, Billy Beaton offered a response without hesitation that would one day be a source of continuing controversy in the days and weeks ahead. It was a sort of answer that a three-year-old could be expected to give, and for that reason, the authorities were inclined to discount it. Indeed, it would be six years before the world came to realize that the beaten child had been right all along. I have said it on this podcast before, and I will probably have to say it again. When a child tells you that the fucking child murderer is in your goddamn apartment building, listen! (laughs) The boogeyman took him, Billy Beaton said. God damn it! Yep. So later that day in Brooklyn, a streetcar motorman named Joseph Meachin or Meehan. Hi, son. You couldn't have gotten this open. Neither could other boy. Who did it? The boogeyman. All right. We got to st- call the cops. Yep. But, <laughs> so um, what's the boogeyman look like? Tell me everything, everything you, you know about the fucking boogeyman. Right. So uh, a streetcar motorman named Joseph Meehan noticed an elderly man attempting to pacify a small boy. The boy, who did not have a coat or hat a hat on, although the weather was cold, was crying and saying he wanted to go home to see his mother. Meehan later identified the child as Billy Gaffney. He has never been heard from again. Now, investigators originally doubted the three-year-old story and thought William had simply wandered off. They searched neighborhood factory buildings and local canals without results and concluded that the child had, in fact, been abducted. The three-year-old described the boogeyman as a slender, elderly man with gray hair and a gray mustache. Billy Gaffney's case was highly publicized, but remained a mystery until 1934, when Albert Fish was finally arrested. Six years later, they listened to this child, Mm -hmm. and he wasn't arrested until, did you say 94? 34. Okay. 1934. Well, yeah, because 94, he would have been way dead by then. But now, keep in mind. How um, old is he by now? Good God, I'm bad at time. Uh, he's gray. 30. He's Bitch, I got 50s. gray hair. That's why I shave. I'm 30. <laughs> <laughs> he would have been like in his mid to late 50s. At this no, point. but okay. he, he's okay. gray enough to be called the gray man. Yeah, that's fair. That's very fair. But also keep in mind that the Gaffney murder took place in 27 and 1934 was when he was arrested. Last episode, we said he got remarried when he was doing the buck, buck, how many hands up? That was in 1930. Yeah. So he had already done the murders yeah. when he got remarried. So I had imagined because he did the the first fucking torture that we hear about in this episode in the last episode yeah. happens in literally nineteen twenty. Yeah. So like yeah, he's probably been killing since about then. So after his capture, Fish confessed to the murder of Billy Gaffney. And this is what he wrote. Buckle in. I'm buckled. Some years ago, I lived at 228 East 81st top floor front. Suppose I confess to you that I did kill the Gaffney boy in the same manner I did the Bud girl. We'll get to Bud. Yeah, I figured. I am charged with the crime. It was the intro, so it's also the finale. I am charged with the crime. He's good at his job, Josh. (laughs) (laughs) I am charged with the crime anyhow, and and many really believe I did. I will admit the motorman who positively identified me as getting off his car with a small boy was correct. I can tell you that at, t- at the time, I was looking for a suitable place to do the job. 
Not satisfied there, I brought him to the Riker Avenue dumps. There is a house that stands alone, not too far from where I took him. A few years ago, I painted this house for the man who owns it. He is in the auto wrecking business. I forgot his name, but my son, Henry, can tell you because he bought a car from him. This man's father lives in the house. Gene, John, and Henry helped me paint the house. Now, Gene, John, and Henry are three of his three boys. There was, at that time, an old number of old autos on the road. I took the Gaffney boy there, stripped him naked and tied his hands and feet, and gagged him with a piece of dirty rag I picked up out of the dump. Then I burned his clothes, threw his shoes in the dump. Then I walked back and took the trolley to 59th Street at 2 a.m. and walked from there home. The next day, about 2 p.m., I took tools, a good heavy cat of nine tails, homemade, short handle, cut one of my belts in half, slit these halves in six strips, about eight inches long. I whipped his bear behind till the blood ran from his legs. I cut off his ears, nose, slit his mouth from ear to ear, gouged out his eyes. He was dead then. I stuck the knife in his belly and held my mouth uh, through his body and drank his blood. Jesus. I picked up four old potato sacks and gathered a pile of stones. Then I cut him up. I had a grip with me, uh, which I'm not sure. I can't find a, what a grip is. But I had a grip with me? I had me? a grip with me. Hold on. Let me do a quick Google. Don't go, don't go too far. <laughs> I'm guessing it's some kind of bag. Grip. It's, I I, I want to say it's like a clutch, but that's just a small purse. Yeah. I don't know. We might be able to accurately sum it up to Albert Fish doesn't know words good. Possibly. Ah, a grip tester. Okay. Oh, yeah. No, that's just uh, yeah. it tells you how many PSI you can pull at. I'll just Continue. Some kind of bag. Yeah. I had a grip with me. I put his nose, ears, and a few slices of his belly in the grip. Then I cut him below the middle of his body, just below the belly button then threw his legs about two inches below his behind. I put this in my grip with a lot of paper. I cut off his head, feet, arms, and legs below the knee. Then I put in sacks weighed with stones. It's a travel bag. There you go. Ah. Tied the ends and threw them into... Basically a duffel bag. Okay. Gotcha. And threw them into the pools of slimy water you will see along the road going to North Beach. Water is three to four feet deep. They sank at once. I came home with my meat. I had the front of his body I liked the best. His monkey and peewees. And <laughs> there it is. There it is. I just, it's just, you're talking about eating a child right now. Yes. Yep. And you're calling it a monkey and peewees for <laughs> modesty? I understand he's insane. I get it. But what? He just liked it better that way. I yeah. don't. Okay. Yeah. And a nice little fat behind to roast in the oven and eat. Listen. That's where Josh makes a drink. Yeah. <laughs> I had to. I understand. <laughs> I gotta say this though. I'm not gonna be able to look at ass for a little while after this, and I'm real mad about it because I don't get a lot. Just for a while, the phrase "eat that ass" is just gonna. Not even that. It's just like you know, I am brown. I I like me a fat ass. I just <laughs> I do. But like, I it's gonna it's ruined right now because every time you say a boy's fast i'm just imagining like like it's bad man i know it's bad because i because you keep talking about slicing it yeah it's just bad i made a stew out of his ears nose when we talk about ass like it's food it's for being sexy not actually food (laughs) i made a stew out of his ears why we call it cake not fucking pork (laughs) 
I made a stew out of his ears, nose, pieces of his face, and belly. I, I tried to make him stop culinary. talking about it, and he still won't. He won't. <laughs> yeah, no, no, he's not gonna. I put onions, carrots, turnips, celery, salt. I don't need to know the fucking recipe, Don. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait, how much of each? It doesn't say. Ah. Uh, it, was, <laughs> it was good. I split the cheeks of his behind open. I don't want to toast to anything about this story. <laughs> Let's but... toast to fucking living through it. That's <laughs> uh, uh Then I split the cheeks of his behind open. It's much smoother. It's better. It's good. Cut off his monkey and peewees and wash them first. I put all in a roasting pan, lit the gas in the oven. Then I put strips of bacon on each cheek of his behind and put that in the oven. I then picked four onions. And when meat had been roasted about a quarter hour... I poured about a pint of water over it for gravy and put in the onions. This is a recipe. Yes. <laughs> I hate and it. And the thing that's the the most bothersome I hate about that this it, was a boy. Yeah, four. four right. Years old. Four years old. Yes. But I think... A child. Even more so than the fact that he's killed the kid. Yeah. He got caught for it, and he is proud. Well, he didn't get yeah. caught for this. No, no. He got caught for grace. He's. This is just oh, a confession. Okay. But you're right. Well, you're right. Later. But it's to an even greater degree than you thought. Right. It's like yeah. he got caught for a whole different thing. But he wanted like, you to know that me, he ate it. Let me kid. tell you how good of a job I did cooking this four year old. That yes. I just if you're giving me the opportunity, let me let me just enlighten you as to how well I did. Um, bad. Bad. Yeah. Very bad. Right. At frequent intervals, I basted this behind with a wooden spoon, so the meat would be nice and juicy. In about two hours, it was nice and brown, cooked through. Basted with a wooden, does he mean? Like the juice. Oh, like, oh okay. Yeah. That's what, yeah. yeah. Well, I was thinking that the man is just fucking stupid and he meant tenderized. No. Mm-mm. I'd never ate any roast turkey that tasted as good as his sweet fat little behind it. It's because you keep calling it sweet. I know. Um, Honey sweet. I, yeah. Because, I, the, look, I like me a sweet ass. <laughs> right. Who doesn't? Who doesn't like a sweet ass? Doesn't but matter. This who makes you it are. awful. <laughs> yeah, uh, I hate every bit of the meat in about four days. Also, we're already talking about a child. Like it's <laughs> right. fucking food. Yeah. Like, mm. mm-hmm. his little monkey was as sweet as a nut. Gross. <sighs> but his peewees, I could not chew. I threw them in the toilet. I don't think we have enough sexton left. <laughs> no. Which brings us to the most famous case involving Albert Fish which is that of Grace Bud. Now, it's a story that we began oh so long ago and ended up being the case that caught Albert Fish, that got Albert Fish finally arrested. It's There are a lot of parallels to Albert Fish and um, Andre, Andre Rand. Oh. Andre Rand. Yeah, no, 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 okay. from Cropsey. Yeah. Um, Thank you for reminding me of his name. I was thinking of it earlier. I, I, remember. I, I remembered Andre. I couldn't remember his last name. It finally came to me. Um. So, I mean, much the same, it's the the most well-known case, the one that finally got him caught, solved all these other cases, right. basically, um, in the worst possible way for it to have happened, right. but the closest thing to closure that Anybody? the families will ever have. Although, I think knowing all of this is worse than not knowing. Oh, yeah. I think so, too. <laughs> yeah. So in 1928, Albert Fish answered an ad in the newspaper seeking work from an 18-year-old boy named Edward Budd. The Budd family had struggled financially, and therefore Edward was hoping to find employment to take some of the burden off of his father. Did I just hear your door? Probably. Okay. 
Albert Fish answered the ad by showing up at the Bud family home. He portrayed himself as an average, not by a, not at all psychopathic, sweet old man looking for help around his home. Just walking in like, hi, I'm normal, not at all a crazy pedophilic cannibal. No. Now, the Bud family never suspected that they were dealing with a deranged murderer. Albert Fish introduced himself to the Bud family as Frank Howard, a Long Island farmer who was willing to pay $15 a week, which was roughly $250 in today's money. Now, keep in mind that this was also during the Great Depression for Edward Bud's help around his home. Fish even agreed to hire Edward's friend Willie on as well. So this is a lot like the scam letters yeah. that he wrote. <laughs> it's he, he got in the same way. I'm assuming. Um, yeah, I mean, he found the ad in the paper, uh-huh. and it was an 18 year old boy, and he had decided that this was this was it. This was going to be his fish is posing as right a very rich a old man mm-hmm. who is hiring a completely normal yes old man yes who, who is, is hiring an 18 year old boy to basically be a farm hand for the summer on his right. farm. Okay, yeah, a completely normal and not at all suspicious thing to do. Yes, well, I mean the at, at the time. That's what I'm. No, yeah. that was not a joke. Exactly. That was literally what I mean. Yeah, it was like, yeah, I'm an old dude. I can't work this fucking farm. It's too hot. Come work for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, except that I'm completely normal and not suspicious at all. Right. Promise. I promise. Pinky promise. <sighs> so the Bud family could not believe their good fortune. Meanwhile, with the power of hindsight, we know exactly what Fish had in mind. Fish had planned to tie Edward up, mutilate him, and leave him to bleed to death before consuming him. Fish made arrangements with the Bud family to return a week later for Edward. Now, Fish did not arrive on the agreed-upon date, though he did send a telegram to set up a new date. On June 3, 1928, Fish stopped at a newsstand near the Bud's apartment and bought the strawberries and pot cheese. He also asked the shopkeeper to hold on to a package for him, a package that, unknown to the shopkeeper, held Fish's implements of torture. When Fish arrived at the Buds, Edward and Willie were out playing stickball at the time. Fish joined the rest of the Bud family in the kitchen to share lunch and the strawberries and cheese while they waited. That's when Fish saw Grace Bud for the first time. Now, one thing that everybody could agree on about Grace Bud was her beauty. The other was her pallor. Now, Grace had spent the majority of her life in the tenements of New York, not seeing a lot of sunlight, so she had a very pale complexion. On this day, she was still dressed in her church clothes, a white silk dress, silk stockings, canvas shoes, and a string of fake pearls. When Fish saw her, he was taken aback. Finally, he managed to smile and said, come here, child. Grace hesitated at first, but eventually moved to stand by Albert's knee. He asked her all sorts of questions about her friends, school, and also repeatedly told her how slender and beautiful she was. He reached up one hand and began stroking her hair. Now, Grace seemed uncomfortable and looked to, uh, to her mom, who simply encouraged her to let him continue. Fish noticed the look and stopped stroking her hair. And again, he's preying on desperate people. Right. Is, mm-hmm. is what this is. is he, he goes for the weakest that he can. Instead, he picked her up and sat her on his lap. Reaching into his pocket, he pulled out a wad of money, saying, let's see how good of a counter you are. Now, Grace counted the money out loud. $92.50, which is the equivalent of almost $1,500 in today's money at the time. And see, that's a fucking disgusting, like, power move right. on mm-hmm. his position. Mm-hmm. Like, having, Dude, having this their... scene is literally right out of some prestige TV. Right, It's yeah. literally the bad guy comes into your house, sits your kid on his knee, and then makes the kid read your fucking salary to you. Right. 
it was most assuredly more money than the buds had seen before. Fish gave Grace 50 cents and told her to go buy an ice cream for her and her sister. Now Grace's mom told her to let Edward know that Mr. Howard was there. A few minutes later, Edward and Grace both returned, but Fish, did, Fish had changed plans again. He told Edward that they were not going to leave right away because he had received a letter from his sister that it was his niece's birthday and they were having a party that he must attend, but he would be back later that night. As he grabbed his coat and hat, Fish acted like he was struck with an amazing idea. He turned to Grace and said he wondered if she would like to come to the party with him, as his niece was her age and there would be cake and games and other children. He promised Mr. and Mrs. Bud that he would take good care of her and she would be brought back when he picked Edward up later that night. Now, the Buds were rightfully skeptical. They didn't know anything about Mr. Howard other than what he had told them. But on the other hand, they didn't want to seem distrustful of their son's new employer. I would. I yeah. don't Listen, I trust my son, not his boss. Right. Mrs. Bud was hesitant, but finally her husband said it would be all right. Mrs. Bud reluctantly agreed. Her only caveat was that she needed to know where it was. Immediately, Fish gave her an address, 137th Street and Columbus Avenue. Now, the Buds were not the most in-the-know people in New York, so much so that they didn't realize until it was too late that Albert Fish had given them a non-existent address. Yeah, that's what I figured. By the time that they did realize it, it was too late. Mrs. Bud watched... I, I am not... I don't know New York. Why is that not real? Because those streets don't exist. Ah. Or if they do exist, they don't cross with each other. Yeah. Ah. Now, Mrs. Bud watched them leave and walk down the street. Finally, they turned a corner, and that was the last the Buds ever saw of their little girl. As Grace and Fish walked down the street, they stopped at the newsstand to pick up Albert's canvas wrap package. Then they went to the train station, and Fish bought two tickets to Worthington, a town less than 20 miles north of Manhattan, a round-trip ticket for him, and a one-way ticket for Grace. Now, one of the saddest parts of the whole Grace Bud murder occurred as she and Fish were disembarking from the train. Fish was so caught up in his plans that he had forgotten his tools, implements of hell on the train. Just as she was stepping down off the train, young Grace noticed the missing package and ran back to get it for him. Jesus. Yeah, this whole scenario, and even if Fish says it in, in his confessions, a lot of this, he says repeatedly, if that hadn't happened, she'd still be alive. And he actually says if she had not grabbed the package, she would still be alive. Or if the buds had just agreed not to let her go, she would still be alive. But you got to think about it. One way or another, the great, the buds were going to lose a child that night. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whether it was Edward or... Yeah, Grace. I was actually thinking about that earlier when we were talking about their son's employer. And I was like, wait, he's not even fucking really an employer. Yeah, he's right. going to kill their child. Right. right. So One or the other. And he takes Grace for a specific reason that we'll get yeah. to. And I have to say, I've already told Josh this. Uh, I sat down to finish the script Friday night mm -hmm. and I got to this part here and I had to stop because mm -hmm. I couldn't bring myself to do this in the night. Mm -hmm. I had to wait till Saturday morning. So here we go. This is the warning. This is where it gets bad. This is the uh, this is the worst part. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even more so than. Yeah. Yeah. This Fish's is this is where you should have finished your four drink. Minimum. Yeah. Fish's destination was an abandoned two-story house that the locals called Wisteria Cottage. The house sat about 100 yards off the main road and was surrounded on three sides with dense woods. The back of the house faced a rising slope, and off to one side sat an outhouse and a waist-high wall that ran along one border. 
Now, though the house looked run down, the front yard was covered in wildflowers. Fish told Grace to pick some flowers while he ran inside to grab something. While Grace entertained herself with the flowers, Fish made his way around the back of the house and hid the girl's hat and coat under a large rock. Then he moved to the side of the house, grabbing an empty five-gallon paint bucket, and went inside. Once upstairs, Fish unrolled the canvas package and laid out his implements of torture neatly. Then he completely undressed and placed his clothes in a pile in the corner. Then cracking the window, he called out to Grace and told her to come upstairs. The girl, carrying a large bouquet of wildflowers, rushed inside and up the stairs. When she saw Fish standing at the top of the staircase completely naked, she screamed, I'm telling Mama. She dropped her flowers and turned to run down the stairs. But with surprising speed, Fish caught her by the throat and dragged her back into the killing room. Grace kicked and scratched at Fish, but he managed to overpower her. Once he got her to the ground, he knelt on his, her chest while he continued to choke her. Finally, Grace's struggling began to slow down and eventually stopped. By the time it all stopped, Fish was fully erect. Once he was sure that she was dead, he placed her neck on the edge of the five-gallon bucket, took the knife from his tools, and began cutting the head off, making sure to catch as much of the blood in the bucket as possible. Then he stripped her clothes off and threw them into the nearby closet. He then began the task of cutting the body up. using the So, but he... He killed her quick, yeah? yeah? he choked her to death real fast, yeah. I mean, I I say quick. Choking yeah. someone to death takes a second. Right. It's not as quick Up to 15 as... minutes, kids! Yes. <laughs> um, but there it's was like no... It's like five minutes means you might... It's like three minutes, no brain damage, or yeah. only minor, and then five minutes, it starts getting to be serious brain damage unless you're like a free diver who trains for that shit. Yeah. And then past five minutes, you might survive up to 15, but not without serious brain damage. Yeah. But he didn't actually... None of that matters when the madman cuts your fucking head off. Right. He didn't actually torture her. Though. No. He didn't He didn't rape her. No. He didn't... Right. I so, was incredibly worried that that was about to happen. Yes. Even up until just now. This is... This is the outlier. Yeah, for and, him and, as a serial killer, yeah, way way outside. I was of... gonna ask, like, I thought his mo was boys. boys. Yes, and we're gonna. Is. I'm gonna discuss that. Yeah, in a few minutes we're gonna get into how this here. affects him. But because keep in mind, this is all 1927. Yeah, he wasn't caught till 1934. So we're talking. Yeah, that's seven years that. Yeah, after that. Um, so this one, this one has its reasons for being so much of an outlier, but. This one being as discomforting as it is right now, the usual MO wasn't carried out here. And I just want to drive that home. Right. Because he didn't torture her. No, it's she died scared, but she didn't die tortured. Right. Like everybody else that he got his hands on. Right. And that is because she was a girl and not a prepubescent boy that he's usually attracted to. Right. Mm. Um, that's what I was talking about. Why did earlier. he switch to her then? We'll, we'll, get, there. we'll get there. But, um, well, eh, sort of. well, yeah, but this is where, what I was talking about way back at the beginning of episode one of this, where he hits all the different, every different categorization that a serial killer can have. He hits at some different point in his serial killing career. Um, this is this is the one where it is not a process killing, it is a product killing. He just wants the human being dead. He doesn't care 
how he doesn't take pleasure in the process of the murder. It's just a job well done to him yeah. that she's dead. Although it did say he was fully erect by the time he was done. So there must have been some pleasure taken in it. Yeah, but not in the same way and not to the same extent as yeah. when he carries out his usual MO. Um, he then began the task of cutting the body up. Now, using the knife first before switching to the cleaver, he managed to cut her body in half just below the navel. He then took the bucket and dumped the blood out the window. Uh, he then took Grace's head and shoes to the outhouse, intending to drop both into the hole. But at the last minute, he felt that dropping her head into what he called muss was disrespectful. He dropped her shoes in the hole, dropped his sho- her shoes in the hole, and then proceeded to leave the head on the floor of the outhouse. Once back inside, he took the two halves of the body and propped them up against the wall where they would be hidden by the door. By that point... Now, listener, I've just spent about, I don't know, <laughs> two and a half hours or so. You know, you guys will hear an edited version, but we, you know, there's starts and stops. You get it. Yeah. Um, At, Learning the- about this man and his M.O. Yeah. And none of this is the same. No. It, bear in mind, uh, think from Ruben's perspective here. You guys have heard these two episodes a week apart. Yeah. We recorded these on the same day. Yeah. So we we've been we've been locked in a room we, together, yep. just the three of us, <laughs> for a uh, while, talking about this for a hot minute. And honestly, I'm just confused at this point because yeah. just the three of us. Don't say that. Learning how to kill a child, just nope. the three of us. <laughs> don't don't say learning like. Don't, we're yeah, I was gonna notes. say don't say learning like we're fucking <laughs> studying. <laughs> yeah. I'm not gonna use this knowledge for evil. Now, by this point, point, Fish's hands were covered in blood. But as there was no running water in the house, Fish went back outside and... You gotta give us a minute, because I can't be laughing while you describe this. You just hit me out of fucking nowhere with that. We don't plan to use this. For evil. (laughs) Um, Oh, shit. So, yeah, he, uh, he went outside and wiped his hands clean in the grass. He then went back inside, got dressed, put his implements of hell back into the canvas package, and went home carrying a newspaper-wrapped parcel under his arm. It was 3 o'clock in the afternoon when Fish and Grace arrived at Wisteria Cottage. When Fish left, it was 4.10. So all of that was in an hour and 10 minutes. He's gotten efficient. Yeah. Four days later, Fish returned to the cottage. He took the two halves and carried them out to the wall behind the house. He placed them on the ground, quote unquote, as they would have been in life. Then he went to the outhouse to retrieve her head and placed it with the body as well. He then took his implements and threw them over the wall. Fish stated that he returned to the house three or four times after the murder, but never looked for or at the body again. Now, the disappearance of Grace Bud was a huge news story. By the way, that is the last dark part of this episode. I I just don't understand why. Okay, so we're not we're not doing the the letter. Oh, we're getting there. Oh, okay, yeah, but that was darker than the letter. That's fair. Okay, um, I I remember the letter being worse. I don't. I haven't heard. I haven't heard the Grace Bud letter in a minute. So, uh, so the disappearance of Grace Bud which was a huge news story even after the disappearance. By 1933, kidnapping had become a nationwide epidemic. The New York Times ran a regular front page feature called "The Kidnapping Situation." with updates on ransoms, victim identification, as well as how Roosevelt's war against kidnappers 
which he had declared earlier that month, was progressing. In July alone, the cholera... Bro, can you fucking imagine a world where kidnapping is even more common than that shit is now? Yeah. Right. Well, you got to remember, we didn't have, in the 20s, they didn't have safe site super chick or stranger danger and all that. I mean... Yeah, I mean, yeah. This, this is the era that brought about all yeah. of that, you know, don't talk to strangers... In July alone, the column reported on more than a dozen cases, all highly publicized. The most notorious case, the one that brought the growing problem to the attention of the public, occurred the previous year, so 1932. On the evening of March 1st, 1932, when the parents were in the living room chatting, they heard a cracking noise outside. They listened for a few moments, but the noise was not repeated. Around 10 p.m., the nursemaid went to check on the baby and found that he was missing. An envelope was found with a note demanding $50,000 for the child's return. The father of that child was Charles Lindbergh. I knew this was going to be the fucking Lindbergh baby. Um, Around this time period, actually, and for a little while before, but um, kidnapping was a big thing for like upstart gangsters yeah. and stuff. That was uh, that was more efficient than robbing places. It was more efficient than bootlegging. Um, it was harder... To pull off, but a kidnapping and ransom scheme would have a better payoff than right. just about anything else that they could do at the time. So kidnappings were very, very big. Yeah. And that that's why there was the whole thing to stop kidnappings. And it wasn't always literally kids, but it was just general ransom situations. So it was a lot of mm-hmm. like, you know executives or like bar owners, anyone who would have had enough money to pay a ransom. Yeah. And that's one of the things that differentiated Grace Bud from the rest was that there was never a ransom requested though. And we'll talk about it a little more. There were people who would write the buds asking for a ransom, but they didn't, you know, actually have the baby, but um, just opportunists. Now, eventually, yeah. Said it before. No. Say it again because of my fucking job. <laughs> Don't fucking do that. Yeah, Don't no. harass a family who's going through some shit like this. Please. Just like, please. Just like, but please, though. So eventually, the case began to grow cold, save for one detective who never stopped. A detective by the name of William King. Now, on Thursday, May 30th, 1934, the entire U.S. Naval fleet sailed into New York Harbor in a display of U.S. Naval might. President Roosevelt proudly received them from the deck of the Indianapolis, and New Yorkers turned out by the hundreds of thousands to witness the spectacle. For 18 days, the ships remained drawing massive crowds. It was a huge attraction, with over 1.4 million tourists visiting over the two-and-a-half-week period. The newspapers covered the event thoroughly with plenty of photographs of the warships and the sailors enjoying the hospitality of New York City. On Monday, June 4th, a special section of photographs was published in the Daily Mirror. One of the photographs was of two couples, a pair of sailors and their dates. Three of the people in the photograph were looking off to the side, but one, a young girl, was looking directly at the camera. Of the millions of people who saw the photograph, one Mrs. Adele Miller of Brooklyn was struck by this young girl. Convinced of what she saw, she clipped the photograph and drew an arrow in the margin pointing to the girl and wrote, This is the girl, Grace Bud. She sent the photograph to the Buds. They examined the photograph and agreed that the girl certainly bore a remarkable resemblance to Grace 
but even under a magnifying glass, no one could be absolutely certain. See, at this time, everybody just thought she was still missing. Mm -hmm. Right. Even so, they took the photograph to Detective King. Within 24 hours, the newspapers reported that Grace may be alive, and the photograph was reprinted. This new hope was quickly dashed when 16-year-old Florence Swinney came forward and identified herself as the girl in the photograph. I do like to hear stories about like detectives who have no direct relation to a case staying on it for years and right. years and years, even though everybody else has dropped it. Right. Even though, for a large part, detectives can be a part of the problem with mm-hmm. police, there are... It's the opposite issue. You say there's a few bad apples. No, there's a few good apples. Right. And I like when I hear stories about a single detective that has a case that hits home for them in a way that they continue working that case in the background over the years. And I wish we had, you know, more time, but it ended up being a three part episode. If we actually went into, if you really want to learn more about Ed King or William King and his, what he did in addition to what we're going to tell you, definitely check out Harold Schechter's um, Deranged. Uh, it goes into a lot more detail about the the investigation. Like on yeah. the first half of the book, pretty much, it's just the investigation into the Grace Bud. And they talk about William Gower, Billy Gaffney, and Francis McDonald. Mm-hmm. But it focuses on the uh, what happened to Grace Bud. Mm-hmm. So, um, ah, so that's what inspired you to frame the story around grace from the beginning no it was i needed something to start i didn't want to start with just saying albert fish was born you know i wanted something story driven right uh so it was just another dead end except for one thing in march of 1930 the buds had moved to a cheaper lodging uh at 404 west 15th street the newspapers in their renewed interest in the bud case printed the new address in their articles god damn it and among the people who read it was albert fish Yep, and he's a fucking attention whore, like most big-name serial killers are, because unfortunately it's part of what gets them their name. Right. Now, although officially still open, the case had been given up on by the police, except for William King, who was still actively pursuing the truth. For six years, he had- Which I love and commend him for. Yes. For six years, he had continued almost obsessively with the case, traveling over 50,000 miles following rumors, tips, and dead ends. One ruse he would use, one ruse he used to, was to place phony news items uh, about the case in the New York papers. Oh, really? Yeah, that's clever. Yeah, not allowing the public to forget. They were long shots, but King was willing to try anything, and they always resulted in responses, albeit ones that never led anywhere. Now, at the time, the most famous columnist Walter Winchell was one of King's main outlets. And in November... This, this feels like what happened with... Um, who's the one that people think Katy Perry is? John Bonet. Yeah, John Bonet oh, Ramsey. Jesus fucking Christ, I hate people. <laughs> it, but it sounds similar to that, where it's like <laughs> years and years of investigations and like just random fucking drops of information. Right. To the public to keep interest in it and stuff. It's yeah. just very similar. On November 2nd, 1934, the following appeared in Winchell's On Broadway column. I, on Broadway. Yeah. I checked on the Grace Bud mystery. She was eight when she was kidnapped about six years ago. And it's safe to tell you that the Department of Missing Persons will break the case, or they expect to in four weeks. They are holding a quote-unquote cokey 
now at Randall's Island, who was said to know most about the crime. Oh, that's definitely just a thing where they all go and do a lot of cocaine and have yeah. hunches. Right? Guarantee. Yeah. Uh, Grace, are either that or they're saying is somebody who was a coke addict. Ah. Uh, yeah, mm. which is not as fun. No. Bring it well, so were most detectives and cops in that yeah. time period. In that um, time period? Well, you know. Grace is supposed to have been done away with in Lyme, but another legend is that her skeleton is buried in a local spot. More anon. The story was complete mm-hmm. fabrication. Hence, hearken. <laughs> <laughs> there was no. Co- uh, the story was complete fabrication. There was no cocaine addict, but the report would turn out to be prophetic. On November twelfth, nineteen thirty-four, the buds received a letter in the mail, mailed the day before from the Grand Central Annex Post Office in Manhattan. Delia Bud, who opened the letter, was illiterate and had trouble reading it while uh, reading what it said. She called Edward over, who read it in silence, then rushed through the door. Okay, don't fucking do that. Don't do that. Read it out loud, motherfucker. <laughs> Read it out loud. She asked you for help, and then you did not help. I think, actually, once you hear the letter, he did help. Maybe he did, but still. The letter read... It, it may well be like... I don't think I could read that out loud myself either. Yeah. Mm, we shall see. My dear Mrs. Bud. Well, I guess right now. In 1894, a friend of mine shipped on, as a deckhand on the steamer Tacoma, Captain John Davis. They sailed from San Francisco to Hong Kong, China. On arriving there, he and two others went off ashore and got drunk. When they returned, the boat was gone. At the time, there was a famine in China. Meat of any kind was from a dollar to three dollars a pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that all children under 12 were sold to the butchers to be cut up and sold for food in order to keep others from starving. A boy or girl under 14 was not safe in the street. You could go in any shop and ask for steak, chops, or stew meat. Part of the naked body of a boy or girl would be brought out and just what you wanted cut from it. A boy or girl's behind, which is the sweetest part of the body, is sold and sold as veal cutlets brought the highest price. John stayed there so long he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, one seven, one eleven, took them home, stripped them naked, tied them in a closet, and burned everything they had on. Several times, every day and night, he spanked them, tortured them, to make their meat good and tender. First, he killed the 11-year-old boy because he had the fattest ass and, of course, the most meat on it. You know, his writing style is different in this letter by a bit. Yeah, he started off with a story. Yeah. Right. I mean, he's still saying fattest ass. Yeah, exactly. It's still so clear that mm-hmm. it's fucking Albert Fish, yeah. but it's it's a different approach right. than we've seen in all of his other letters, too, which goes to show his mental state is very changed yeah. at this point in his life. Yeah. Every part of his body was cooked and eaten except the head, bones, and guts. He was roasted in the oven, all of his ass, boiled, broiled, fried, stewed. The little boy was next, went the same way. At that time, I was living at 409 East 100th Street, rear right side. He told me so often how good human flesh was, I made up my mind to taste it. On Saturday, June the 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street, brought you pot cheese, strawberries. We had lunch. Grace sat in my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her. On the pretense of taking her to a party, you said yes, she could go. I took her to an empty house in Westchester I had already picked out. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wildflowers. I went upstairs and stripped all my clothes off. I knew if I did not, I would get her blood on them. 
when all was ready, I went to the window and called her. Then I hid in a closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and tried to run downstairs. I grabbed her and she said she would tell her mama. First, I stripped her naked. How she did kick, bite, and scratch. I choked her to death, then cut her in in small pieces so I could take my meat to my rooms, cook and eat it. How sweet and tender her little ass was when roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not fuck her, though. She, I could have, had I wished, but she died a virgin. Now, there was nothing in the letter that pointed to where Frank Howard could have been found. Nah, Josh was right. This is the worst part. Yeah. Even more than the detailed description of the murder? Yeah. Wow. Because you got to think, man. It's about the psychological torture. Yeah, this is not about him. This is, this is a letter that he intended the mother of this young girl to read. Right. That's way more fucked up. Like, it's the same. It's the same thing where like the vivid description is like a jump scare horror movie, but this is a psychological. It's the part where he tells her that I did not fuck her. That really cements it for me. Where it's like, wow. I don't know why it, it strikes that chord with me, but like, if a villain in a movie tries to comfort you, you get fucking creeped out. Yeah. And like I'm imagining like that's what it seems like he's going for there mm-hmm. in the wildest fucking way possible. And like I don't know, it's just probably cuz you're dealing with a person why it seems so off-putting is that you're dealing with a person that strangling, cutting up and eating a child is fine. Yeah. But fucking her, that's where he draws the line. Yeah. Yeah. That's part of it. Yeah. So where it's and like, man, I <sighs> This letter is much more put together than the others two. Like the other, it's like he thought real hard about what would be the worst impact for this woman. It's like he had a first draft of this letter and rewrote it better than the other ones. It still has all of his like torturous. It's I don't even want to call it trolling because it's that's the word that we're using because it makes the most sense in the modern day context. But it's really it's meant to torment. Mm-hmm. And um, it's literally psychological abuse, is what yeah, it is. Yeah, and I one of the parts of it I think that hits home the most is that he reminds her of, oh yeah, I'm that guy. Yeah, that like I'm. You know who I am. She, she sat on my lap. You yeah, told you, me you that she could come with me. It's right. like, look, remember this. Mm-hmm. I'm the only one who knows this. You know that this is true. Now let me horrify you. Mm-hmm. Right. So there was nothing in the letter that pointed to where Frank Howard or Albert Fish could be found, but the envelope did have a clue. There was an imprint of a hexagonal emblem on the flap of the envelope with the letters NYPCBA. The address had been scribbled over to try and obliterate it, but King, the the detective, could still make it out. 627 Lexington Avenue. King immediately headed over. Now, it turned out to be the headquarters of the New York Private Chauffeurs Benevolent Association. King asked the president, Arthur Ennis, if there was a member named Frank Howard. Ennis checked and said there was not. And King asked if he could check the handwritten forms for the, of the members, both past and present. Hopefully, King would be able to match the handwriting to the letter and Western Union message. Ennis handed King a stack of forms, almost 400 of them. Back at his office, King began checking the forms, but it was a waste of time. None of them matched. King returned the next day and asked Ennis to call an emergency meeting of all the members. At the meeting the next afternoon, King asked his members if they knew of anyone who had removed stationery from the offices. After the meeting, one man came forward, Lee Sikowski. 
uh, a janitor and part-time errand boy, told King that he took some about six months earlier. At the time, he was living at a rooming house at 200 East 52nd Street, room 7. King went to the address and spoke to the landlady, Miss Frieda Schneider. She said the description of Frank Howard matched one of her lodgers who had moved out only a few days earlier on November 11th. This is what I wanted from fucking Tanzler. I wanted I wanted this noir ass yes. detective to win. Yes. Like, you know what I'm saying? This detective that has been working this case in the background. Yeah. Yeah. This even detective though- didn't say fuck. Fuck it, Jake. It's Chinatown. He said it's Chinatown, Jake, and I'm gonna fuck it. Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's, he really fucking again uh, calling it a noir detective story. It's really that's that. Exactly it's the end of the movie, mm-hmm. and you're looking at the clues that fit together. Yes. Yep. And you were like, you're seeing the every time he was in the background of a scene and shit. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's I, I can see the rain, the black and white raindrops on yeah. the detective's yes. blind on his fucking trilby with the window. Yep. Yeah, yep. The person moved out on November 11th, the day the blood letter was mailed. King was disappointed. He had missed him by days. King asked to see the register, and as he checked the handwriting, it matched perfectly. The name was Albert H. Fish. He asked for more information on her lodger, and Mrs. Schneider told him that Fish's son worked for the Civilian Conservation Corps, and he sent his paycheck to his father each month. She said that Fish was expecting a check quite soon, and then she said something that made King very happy. The check would be sent to Mrs. Schneider's rooming house, and Fish would come by to pick it up. Beginning that night, November 14, 1934, a 24-hour stakeout would be in operation. While his men watched the house, King made other arrangements. He contacted the CCC finance officer and asked him to be told when the next paychecks were to be sent out. He also arranged for New York postal inspectors to monitor the mail and keep a lookout for anything for Albert H. Fish. Days passed and there was no sign of Fish. The detectives were getting worried. On December 3rd, King received a message from a postal inspector. A letter to Albert Fish had been intercepted. The letter was handed over to King, who began to feel more confident, but Fish still did not appear. King began worrying, thinking that maybe Fish expected a stakeout, and King withdrew his men. On the afternoon of December 13th, King got a telephone call from Mrs. Schneider. Fish had just shown up at the rooming house. King told Mrs. Schneider to stall him, and then he hurried over. Once there, Mrs. Schneider led King to one of the furnished rooms. There, he saw an elderly man with gray hair and a wispy gray mustache sitting at a table uh, and sipping from a teacup. The man was dressed in a tweed suit jacket and vest with a shirt and tie and striped trousers that didn't match the suit jacket. Draped over the back of the chair was a black overcoat and a dirty gray fedora lay on the table. This couldn't possibly be the man he'd been hunting all these years, thought King. He was frail and elderly, barely five and a half feet tall and weighing about 130 pounds. Albert Fish, asked King. Fish placed the cup and saucer on the table and rose to his feet, nodding. King crossed the room, and as he did, Fish pulled a razor blade from his vest pocket and held it in front of him. King grabbed Fish's wrist and twisted, the blade dropping from away from Fish's fingers. Fish collapsed into the chair. King looked at the old man. I've got you now, King said in triumph. You rat bastard. <laughs> right. He would say yes. in the movie. <laughs> the finale of the fucking noir detective film. <clears throat> And I also love this. Like, he pulled out that razor. Yeah. You're a frail fucking old man right. now, dude. Like. And in in the book, uh, Deranged, there are pictures of William King. 
And when you say 1940 oh, or 1930s shit. noir film detective, no, that's yeah, I, that's yeah. That, that's William King. That's what he looks like. I just I love the the moment where the power has traded hands. Yeah, because Albert Fish is a control, a, a power killer. He right. he wants the control. He wants to exert power, which is why he chose weak victims. Mm-hmm. But now he is an old, frail, weak man looking at somebody who is much stronger than him, yep. who is about to make sure that he spends the rest of his days behind bars until he gets put in a chair that kills him. Right. Mm-hmm. So at police headquarters, Fish confessed to writing the letter and the Western Union message but denied everything else until King said he would bring the buds, Willie Corman and the manager of the Western Union and Reuben Rossoff. As King headed to the door, Fish stopped him. Don't get all those people, he said in a soft voice. Yo. Yeah, he does. He is exactly the noir detective. And here's him fucking guiding Albert Fish. Wow. God, the face and all. Yeah. Like, yeah. That man that is holding jaw. a cigarette. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Seriously, you just hear the piano in the background. Yeah. Um, So he said, I'll tell you all about it. I took Grace from her home on the third day of June and brought her to Westchester and killed her that same afternoon. The hunt was finally over. What followed was more horrifying than anyone involved could have imagined. His intended victim was not Grace at all, but Edward. It wasn't that he knew him. He just happened to spot the advertisement. His plan was to take Edward to an abandoned house he knew in Worthington in Westchester where he would overpower the boy, tie him up, cut off his penis, and leave him there to bleed to death. That was his plan originally. Yeah, wow. His, his first meeting with Edward was a disappointment. Edward looked like an adult, not exactly what he wanted, and Willie Corman, Edward's friend, made things a little more complicated, but he was confident that he could handle both of the boys. Fish confessed uh, to most... I don't most... know, man. He was already old at that point. Yeah. And they were two able-bodied... Yeah, 18-year-old. 18-year-old yeah. boys. Yeah, no. I I think it, it could have all ended right there. Mm-hmm. Now, if Fish... he hadn't taken Grace instead, yeah. they could have overpowered him. Oh, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Now, Fish confessed to most of this at the station, leaving out certain details, such as the... Uh, and the newspaper wrap parcel that he'd taken with him from the Wisteria Cottage, which was parts of Grace. The questioning finished at around 2.45 p.m., at which point a stenographer was called to get an official statement. One thing struck everyone who heard Fish's tale, and that was the complete lack of emotion that he showed. Yeah, that man uh, in the picture with the very good detective man. Yeah. (laughs) The other guy in that picture looked... Bored. Yeah. Yeah. Like like ready for a nap. Mm -hmm. Like lifeless. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at 5 p.m., two squad cars pulled away from police Like he was literally in the middle of making the noise just, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, except like his vocal cords can't even support that deep yeah. of a sound anymore. It's more just <gasps> like a... <gasps> so at, uh, awful. At, at 5 p.m., uh, two squad cars pulled away from police headquarters. In the first car sat Missing Persons Bureau Sergeant Thomas J. Hamill and Hugh Sheridan. In the second car, in the front next to the driver, was Bureau Chief John Stein and in the back were William King and Deputy Chief Inspector John Ryan. In between King and Ryan sat Albert Fish. A couple of hours later, the cars pulled up at Wisteria Cottage. Fish gave the officers a guided tour, pointing out all the locations of his grisly act six years before, all in the glare of an electric emergency lamp held by Sergeant Hamill. Fish took them outside and showed them the stone wall, where, after a short while digging, 
they came upon a smooth, rounded object. It was immediately obvious what it was, a human skull that was too small to be that of an adult's. Back in the city, a crowd of reporters, having got wind of a break in the case, had gathered at police headquarters. At 8 p.m., Police Commissioner Louis J. Valentine confirmed that a suspect had been arrested and had made a full confession. Before he could answer the torrent of questions, a sergeant notified the commissioner that Grace Bud's head had been found. When reporters broke the news to the Buds, they accepted the news quietly. The emotions drained away by the years. Albert Bud just kept repeating, it seemed all right to let her go. He seemed like such a decent man. By the time Fish... I, it was not that he seemed like such a decent man, as that yeah. he seemed like such a rich man. Right. By this time, Fish, along with King, Stein, and yeah, Ryan... Yeah, but even then, in his head, that is what happened. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. Uh, I know, but in it was, I think what got her out of that house was the power play in making her count that money. Yeah. that That's what really, it, he effectively, indirectly bought her. Right. Mm-hmm. Just by going in and flexing a bunch of cash. So by this time, Fish, along with King, Stein, and Ryan, had returned to the city. The buds were collected and driven down to police headquarters to identify Fish, excluding Delia Bud who had proved increasingly unreliable when it came to identifying anyone. It got to the point that anybody that they brought in to ask if this is this him, she would say yes. Yeah. Mm. Edward identified fish and had to be restrained from getting to him. God, I can only imagine the amount of like arguments and fighting and stuff that must have happened at home yeah. when every time she was like, no, that's the guy. Because you know she wasn't lying. You know she believed it. Right. And him having to be like, no, it's just not. Right. So Mr. Bud stood before Fish, who looked at him without expression. I don't know how many cops it would take to restrain me from killing the man who sent <laughs> me a letter about how he killed my daughter. Yeah. But it's more than a few. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not even an apologetic, apologetic letter. No, no, no. Yeah. No, it's I, a straight up, I did it. That's what I'm saying. And here's how. Yep. It's just as a as a happy story. I love the story of the guy who uh, shot his son's rapist in yeah. the head uh, when he was being led out, uh, out of court, I think, uh-huh. or into court. Maybe he was being taken out of court after being sentenced. Yeah. Uh, the... Dad was unhappy that he didn't receive the death sentence for raping his son. And uh, so he went to the courthouse with a fucking gun. And as they were leading this man out, he was like at a payphone with his back to the cameras and his head down. He walked right up and shot that motherfucker on the side of the head, dropped the gun and let the cops take him. There's video of it. I am a nonviolent person who does not condone murder. But you get it. But I get it. That's not murder. It's house cleaning. It's still murder. Well, you know. We hold ourselves to a higher standard. So Mr. Bud stood before Fish, who looked at him without expression. But boy, if I don't get it. <laughs> yeah. Albert, mm-hmm. hat in hand, in trembling, hat held in trembling hands, asked, don't you know me? Fish quietly answered, yes, you're Mr. Bud. With a voice at breaking point, Albert Bud replied, and you're the man who came to my home as a guest and took my little girl away. Albert Budd's eyes filled, and silently he began to weep. See, Grace was the only girl Fish ever hurt. When asked why he did it, he simply stated, I don't know. However, when Albert Fish Jr., his son, was told of his father's arrest, he didn't seem surprised. According to Junior, Fish Sr. would wake up screaming the name of Grace in the middle of the night. 
It was also at this time that Fish's masochism ramped up with more frequent paddlings, but there was one form of penance that started after Grace's murder that pushed Fish into the pantheon of insanity. He began taking needles of various sizes and started shoving them into his taint. When he was arrested, an x-ray was taken and... His grundle? Yes. Yeah. When arrested, his x-ray was taken and 29 needles were shown to still be embedded in his pelvic region. Now, some people believe that Fish was punishing himself for killing Grace. See, all of his other victims, from Billy Gaffney to Francis McDonald to Thomas Kedden, were boys. People that fit comfortably in his God-driven binding of Isaac psychosis. But Grace didn't fit. Though he did try to force her into it. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's actually literally in a biblical sense, he killed Grace. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can get how that would fuck up a crazy man. And he he actually said, uh, well, it says uh, he did try to force her into the, the that binding of Isaac by stating that the capitation was symbolic of castration. But he also said that by killing her, he protected her from becoming a whore. He said that God told him to do it, yeah, right? He, yeah, God told him to do it because she was going to become a whore and right. she would lose her innocence. Right. So she had to die innocent. That's justification. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're not saying he's right. Well, like like we've talked about before. No, I mean, like, even he doesn't think he's right on that, I don't yeah. think. No, yeah. But it's that thing where you do something and then immediately your brain comes up with a reason that you've done yeah. it. Yes. Fish's trial began on Monday, March 11th, 1935, at the Westchester County Supreme Court in White Plains. The day before, Fish had had chicken soup for lunch and managed to secret away a three-inch bone. He sharpened the bone into a point and used it to tear at his chest and abdomen. The guards managed to get it away before too much damage was done, and the evening newspaper reported on his thwarted suicide attempt, but those familiar with Fish knew this was no suicide attempt. It was one more act of autoeroticism. There was, um, do you have the thing about where at dinner, he was like at dinner with his daughter and the needles? Oh, no, I didn't write that, where he was saying that he was uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, so he was, like, at a dinner party with, uh, like, his daughter and her husband, and um, he was, like, really antsy at the table, and she asked him if something was acting up, like some known medical condition that he already had, and uh, he was like, oh, no, you know those needles that I used to shove inside me? I just put a bunch of them in there not too long ago. Yeah. He was in a constant state of discomfort because of the needles, but... Wow. Yeah. So, he would seem indifferent to what was going on through most of the trial. For a lot of the time, he was actually just dozing. Now, Dempsey, his uh, defense attorney, knew he had to present his client as a man with a raging psychosis, and not the monster that the press portrayed him as being. Concentrating on his bizarre life, his brutal childhood, his self-torture, his mental disintegration... Dempsey blamed Bellevue for failing to recognize his fragile mental state and releasing him back into the public when he committed his brutal act against Grace Budd. Delia Budd was the first one to take the stand uh, on the second day after opening remarks had been concluded. Dempsey made much of the fact that she had repeatedly identified others as the man who took Grace, including at one point a New York detective. Dempsey made his point. Delia was unreliable, and maybe she'd been mistaken once more. I hate when defense attorneys do shit like that. I got it explained to me this way once. When you are a lawyer, 
you pass the same bar. Mm-hmm. It just depends on who hires you. Yeah. They are doing a job just like a prosecutor is doing a job. No, I know. That was that was going to be the next thing out of my However, mouth was I understand what their job is. Yep. I do. However, fuck you. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like, that's a case that you should want to lose. Mm-hmm. I don't care how much integrity you feel like you have as a lawyer. It's time to have integrity as a human being. You don't want to win that case. Mm-hmm. You you cannot want to win that case and still be respected as a contributing member of the community. Albert Budd was completely distraught through his testimony. Because of his glass eye and the fact that a cataract was in the other, Albert Budd had to leave the witness stand and cross to the defense table to identify Fish. Budd bent over and looked at Fish, who looked back at Budd through his fingers. This is Frank Howard, said Albert. That's the man who took my child away. This man right here. Albert Budd covered his face with his hands and broke down. William King was on the stand next. And Albert Budd. Budd. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, that's why I tried to switch to Bud instead of Albert, because if I said Albert, we'd be saying Albert Fish. King was the next on the stand, and Dempsey tried to get him to admit that the confession of Albert Fish was beaten out of him with a rubber hose. King, though, was unflappable and calmly denied it. The next day, with King still on the stand, Dempsey protested strongly and repeated and repeatedly when a cardboard carton containing Grace's bones were brought into court. Each objection was overruled. When Grace's skull was lifted out of the box, there was an audible gasp from the spectators and another objection from Dempsey. It, too, was overruled. I like to think that uh, w- William King didn't beat the confession out of him with a rubber hose. He got the confession and then he just beat him with a rubber hose. Yeah. Yeah. But if even if it was be, King or Fish wouldn't have confessed by being beaten, he would have enjoyed it. Right, exactly. No, it's. I mean, I'm sure he fully admitted to it, and William King was like, "Fuck, somebody go get me the hose." <laughs> I think that this trial played out similarly to the Amber Heard one, with her lawyers being like, "Fuck this crazy bitch," right? But still trying to do something, right? Right, anything, anything. <clears throat> So Dempsey's questioning concerned the cannibalism. He hoped that it would strengthen his insanity plea. No sane man commits cannibalism. King didn't waver. Although Fish had expressed an interest in cannibalism, he never said that he'd actually committed it. Dempsey questioned King about the letter sent to the Buds, asking if there was proof, if that was proof uh, of what he said in the letter, if there was proof of what he said in the letter. King replied that there was. Dempsey's idea was simple. If everything else in the letter was true, then the cannibalism he mentioned in the letter had also had to be true. But a calm king said that there was no proof of this part of the letter. Three more confessions made by Fish were read to the court the next day, and once again, Dempsey objected. They were prejudicial, and they were read out to inflame and arouse the jury against the defendant. He asked for a mistrial. As with all Dempsey's other requests for a mistrial, this one was denied. Dempsey had good reason to be worried about these confessions. In them, Fish had expressed remorse for the murder of the girl, and he also said that he tried to avoid the police. Neither were the actions of a man who was insane. It was clear that Fish knew and understood the difference between right and wrong. Dempsey's insanity defense suffered a major blow. On Friday, March 22nd, that was the last day of the trial, the jury retired at 3.01 p.m. and returned at 8.27 p.m. They had reached a verdict guilty here's the big thing on the insanity issue 
for me. Fish was a reasonably good father to his daughters. Right. He knew how to be a human being. Right. And he made decisions to be a monster. Right. Mm-hmm. He knew the difference. Mm-hmm. He never even... So he d- he did abuse his sons. Um, I think more he tried to get them to paddle them. Which is, which yeah. is definitely Yeah, we're abuse. just arguing yeah. that that's abuse. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <clears throat> Not even arguing that that's abuse, just stating that that's abuse. Yeah, but yeah. he never beat them, which I mean, beating was commonplace for any father in that time period. Right. Like, that was so fucking normal. Even molesting, like, that was so much more frequent then than it is now. Right. I Maybe not that much more frequent, but more frequent nonetheless. He didn't do that to his kids. He right. treated them well. It's just other people's kids. Right. And even during the trial, that he they had his daughters take the stand, and they were like, I never suspected that. He never acted any bizarre way to us. No, they tried to assist in getting him declared insane. Right. And it actually came back. I read somewhere one of the jurors said, there's no doubt in my mind that he was insane, but we couldn't let him yeah. get off on that. That's that's the Yeah, because correct. there's a difference between... There's a difference between unable to make decisions insane yes, and criminally insane, as I think we got to in the last episode. It's, you like Josh said, he is making, actively making decisions to be yes. a monster. Right. He it's all premeditated. Every murder it's was premeditated. Premeditated. And like, it's every single thing he did was a decision to get worse. Yeah. Right. It's it. I think about there was. Um, so, have you ever seen uh, JCS Criminal Psychology no. on uh, YouTube? Great criminal psychology channel. Yeah. yeah, they um, they go through and analyze um, uh, interrogation footage right. from from interrogations, and of course, they always tell you like you know, the first thing that this person did wrong was he talked to the fucking police without a lawyer, and he's right. innocent. Um, but there was one where they showed what somebody who is actually like clinically insane and got a insanity plea when they went to court, they show you what that looks like. And for a lot of it, it is kind of similar to, um, the way that, uh, Albert Fish just confesses very matter of fact, mm-hmm. yeah. very, yeah, that happened. I did that. Mm-hmm. They're not going to lie about it. They just did it. Mm-hmm. But still the fact that every single one of his murders was premeditated. He, every single one, he was never really a crime of opportunity or a crime of passion killer. Right. Ever. Yeah. He planned and got horrifically good at what he did. Dempsey was stunned. How could they not find this man insane? Well, as it turned out, they probably did. Like I said, one juror caught by reporters outside revealed that most of the jury thought he was insane, but thought he should die anyways. Yeah. In yeah. The, in the Daily News, Norma Abrams said, his watery eyes gleamed at the thought of being burned by a heat more intense than the flames with which he often seared his flesh to gratify his lust. Fish was quoted as saying, what a thrill it will be to die in the electric chair. It will be the supreme 
the supreme thrill, the only one I haven't tried. The following Monday, Fish was sentenced to die in the electric chair at Sing Sing during the week of April 29th. Fish gave the judge a little wave and said, thank you, judge. No one will ever know how many children Fish murdered. A Supreme Court justice told Wortham that, according to investigators, Fish was probably responsible for the torture and murder of at least 15 children. Most likely, it's a much higher number. Three days after arriving at Sing Sing, Albert Fish managed to save the bone from his pork chop dinner and sharpened it in his cell. Keeper Daniel Mahoney spotted it and got it away from Fish, but not before he'd managed to carve an 8-inch cross on his body. Dempsey got Fish a stay of execution by April 3rd, 1935, on the grounds that there was doubt about his sanity. It wasn't until November 26th that the decision was upheld. The execution was rescheduled for the week of January 13th, and a last-ditch effort was made by Dempsey in January, but once again, the decision was upheld. On Thursday, January 16th, Fish ate his last meal. He had a T-bone steak for lunch with the bone cut away and removed. Also removed were the bones from the roast chicken he had for dinner. By then, though, he had lost his appetite. At around 10.30 p.m., the Reverend Anthony Peterson came to pray with Fish, who had spent much of his time reading the Bible. Guards arrived at about 11 p.m. Then, with the guard on each side, they followed. he followed and followed by Reverend Peterson, Fish walked down the execution chamber. Fish lowered himself into the chair, and straps were adjusted around his arms, legs, and body. A death mask was slipped over his face, and a leather cap was, with the electrodes was strapped to his shaved head. A second electrode was secured to his right leg. The switch was thrown, and Fish's body pitched. The cords in his neck bulged, and his fist clenched and turned red. Eventually, the body relaxed. Albert Fish, the boogeyman, the werewolf of Wisteria, the gray man, and the oldest man ever executed at Sing Sing Prison was dead. It was 11.09 p.m. There were stories of sparks that leapt from him and that the chair short-circuited because of the needles uh, that were in his body. None of it was true. Holy shit, they never got those out? Nope. He died just like any other man. A lot of them had deteriorated by that time. Yeah, I bet. That's it. We made it. Everybody. Fucking barely. However fucking barely. (laughs) So, uh, we're not going to... Honestly, I'm in better shape than I was at the end of Tanzler. (laughs) Yeah. Like, you know... Because you kind of knew at the very beginning we said child killer. So you knew. Yeah. You knew kind of what to expect. You, you knew where we were going with mm-hmm. this. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't like Tansler where I kept you guys guessing for a long time. You knew time. where this train was going to stop. Yeah. So that wraps it up. This two part episode, this life draining. Uh, we hope that. Well, the good news is now Marcus from the association won't come for us. That's true. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Did you get the joke on that, by the did. way? Yeah, no? I did. I got the, I understood that that was not a real letter. Yeah. yeah. So. The uh, name Marcus Henry. Um, Marcus Henry Kissel. Kissel is uh, Marcus Parks, Henry Zabrowski, and Ben Kissel from mm-hmm. last podcast. It was yep. just a joke. <laughs> mm-hmm. But. Um, so be sure to follow us. You and guys like are us. nerds and I love it. <laughs> be sure to follow us and like us on Facebook. Uh, rate us where Do you can. Do all the things. Yeah. Share uh, us. That's important. Share yes, us. That um, is the most important one right now. If you squirmed and felt uncomfortable, share us with somebody you want to make feel uncomfortable. Yeah. If you want to get in touch with us and tell us how we're absolute fuckboys that you sh- we should <laughs> never do a podcast again, go fuck yourself. Yeah. If uh, you want to get in touch with us and be like, hey, that was good. Hey, we're on Facebook.com slash TTOPod, mm-hmm. and we are on Patreon.com at Patreon.com yep. slash Two Towns Over. Patreon. You gotta put it in the URL. You we're do. explicit content. We're too explicit. If you want to, you know, pay, pay, pay Don money for having done all that 
really mind good work. numbing research and writing such a horrific script. Woo! You can get episodes a week early on Patreon. Yeah. We've got extra content coming out. Um, we do a lot of experimental stuff on our Patreon as well. Uh, yeah, well, that's that's what we're trying to use uh, for some of the. We we want to branch out into other things. I'm making Josh read One Piece. Yes, that's a thing that's happening. We're experimenting with a Josh reads One Piece. Kelsey podcast. might reprise her guesting for that. Yep. Um, um, we also have an Audible link. AudibleTrial.com yes, slash TTOPod. Yep. So anytime you hear us talk about something that you think you want to find out more information about, there's probably a book about it on Audible that you can make someone else narrate for you. Yeah, this week... Other than me. This this week, uh, last week, I think I said uh, you should start the Lightbringer series. Or no, excuse me, that was Lycanius. Lycanius series. Uh, this week, I'm going to recommend a Brandon Sanderson joint. You guys already know it. It's the Stormlight Archives. Um, this one, the first one for that one, I believe, is called The Way of Kings. Um, it's real good. In that one, oh, gosh. I'd like to recommend the novelization of the Halo games. Don't. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> that one's also narrated by Michael Kramer and also Kate Redding, another goat. Greatest of all time, Kate Redding, fucking rules. Uh, Michael Kramer and her make a great duo. Um, give it a listen. Brandon Sanderson's excellent. Anyway, while Don's looking that up, so now he can't edit it out. Um, <laughs> fucking Audible rules. It just rules. It's so good as an adult who likes to read, who doesn't have a whole lot of time at his house to just spend reading, right. I don't know, all of Twilight or whatever. And as a secondary objective there you also help us out yeah um, absolutely we get uh, the the more people sign up for that the more audible might look to actually sponsor us which would be incredible then we have to do commercials with like ad reads and stuff that'd be yeah that'd be a lot of fun don't, don't you guys want to hear how we're gonna do ad reads <laughs> yeah come on isn't it exciting audible's one of the ones that lets you do basically oh. whatever the fuck you want so because we didn't do it last time we're gonna do it this time and uh i'm gonna shout out everybody muddy blurry katie reitzel amanda galilly Jonathan Brada, Carly, Whitney Ketchum, Erica Ingle, John D, <laughs> Luis Navidad, Beth Lawrence, Pat Zabrowski, Amy Rennie, Gina Arnold, Jordan Whitley, Aaron Rutledge, and Lex Be Better. Thank you all for your support. We truly appreciate it. Um, and I don't know if Lex needs to be better. I think she's fine. She's fine, but that's the name she gave us. So, <laughs> Well, Lex Be Better than you, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Lex Be Better every day. Yes. Never stop working. So, as always... Except for when it's time to rest. Self-care is rest, important. Please yes. rest. Uh, fuck cancer. Fuck, fuck cancer. cancer. Shouts cancer. out to the plant moms and their babies. That's right. And we will see you next time. Thank you for listening. Be good to yourselves. Bye. Bye. Bye.